morning. Just, um, just a light passage to look at this morning. I was like, thanks so much uh, when they gave me this passage to speak on. I've not spoken at church for three years, and then they give me this. So I was like, thanks. I was reminded um, this week uh, of Paul's words at the start of uh, 1 Corinthians, where he says to the Corinthian church that he comes to them without eloquence or human wisdom. Uh, so I feel like I'm in quite good company this morning as, as we go to this morning. But it is great to be together. Uh, it's great to, to be here as church uh, this morning. And so we're going to uh, continue our journey this morning as we uh, look at this chapter in James, uh, continuing our, our series on Distinct. Uh, we took a break from the series last week uh, as we were together at Tally Ho, uh, and Tim was there talking to us uh, about how the story is not yet finished. It was a great time together uh, just to think about how God is doing stuff uh, within us as a community, as, as a church, uh, that we may not even be aware of right now. So if you missed that, if you were uh, not around last week, uh, I would really encourage you to uh, go and catch up uh, with that talk um, online. Uh, it was a great time, great time of visioning uh, for the future of what God is doing as a church. And then, of course, the week before that, Judy was speaking from chapter 3 uh, in James uh, about wisdom. And again, I would really encourage you to, to go and watch that back if you weren't part of that. But today, uh, we are going to continue uh, as we head into chapter four, as you heard, there is a lot to take in in this chapter. So I'm going to really quickly try and uh, just highlight a few things that I feel like James is trying to say uh, through this passage. But before we get too heavy, I want to start by asking a question. If we can have the next slide up, that'd be great. Uh, have a look at these four pictures. And I'd like, and I'd like you to think, what do these four pictures have in common? They are a flying a kite, uh, specifically in a public place. You might be able to guess where I'm going with this. Uh, shaking a rug out in the street. Uh, being drunk whilst in charge of a cow. I'm not entirely sure whether that guy is drunk or not. I can't confirm or deny that, but, you know, he might be. And also handling a salmon in suspicious circumstances, uh, which he definitely is. Uh, what, what are those, the four things, what have they all got in common? Believe, believe it or not, anyone got any suggestions? Ah, Yes. They are indeed. They are, it's hard to believe, isn't it? But these four things are all illegal to do in the UK. I'm not quite sure where flying a kite in public uh, stands, but believe it or not, they are it's illegal. Apparently, in 2016, handling a salmon in suspicious circumstances, that was repealed. So if you want to go ahead and ham handle a salmon in suspicious circumstances, you go ahead, and I take no responsibility if you get arrested for that. Uh, so it's hard to believe, isn't it, that those four things are all illegal. But I think what's harder to believe is that each of those laws was put in place for a reason. Uh, I can't tell you what those reasons were, why shaking a rug in a street would be made illegal. I guess it's some kind of health and safety thing. But um, it's, it's, it's hard, isn't it, to, to think what those laws were put in place for. And I guess, really, we need to believe that they were put in place for the benefit of all people. And if we go, um, if you go through life, we find ourselves, don't we, submitting to laws of the land. If we went through red lights, uh, traffic lights all the time, if we thought that law didn't apply to us, there would be a lot of trouble very quickly. And we go through life, don't we, submitting to laws all over the place. And generally, that's a good thing. It's when we get into trouble is when we don't submit to the laws, is when we decide those laws don't apply to us. That's generally when things go wrong. So just as we submit to the rule of law in this country, uh, so this passage that we had read to us by Raj earlier really hangs around uh, what James says in verse 7, where he says, Submit yourselves then to God. This isn't a rigid set of rules 
But this is a way of living that James is encouraging us as a body of believers to, to really engage in, an invitation that God gives so that we can be the distinct community that he wants us to be. Submission, though, is a word that we don't really like, isn't it? It's a word that has a lot of baggage. Uh, it's a word that carries hurt. Uh, it's a word that carries misunderstanding. And I think especially in the church community, it's a word that has been horrifically misused. And especially, I think, in regards to men in relation to the rights and the roles of women. It's been a word that has been manipulated and misused. And this is not what James is talking about here. James is talking about our submission to God, saying that his ways are better than our ways, that submission to God isn't about oppression, but it's about discovering true freedom. So I'm going to very quickly this morning run through three different areas uh, that James highlights in this passage, uh, three different ways uh, that we can find ourselves submitting to things other than God. And those things are selfishness, seduction, and superiority, three things that begin with S. I was quite proud of those three things. So the first thing is this, uh, selfishness uh, and how submission can be the antidote to this. James addresses this right at the start of the passage in verses 1 and 2. He says this, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. Have you ever had a quarrel or a fight with another person? Yeah, there are some heads nodding. Yeah, I can totally relate to that. It's, uh, when you spend life with other people, um, you will inevitably come up against fights and quarrels. And I think this is especially true, isn't it, in a church context. Church is a beautiful thing because it's community. We are family here together. But, you know, community and family are hard. And James, in this passage, he's not afraid of calling out the realities of what life spent with other people is like. There will be quarrels and there will be fights. And James is here just trying to find out what is the root cause of these things. What is really behind the quarrels and the fights that we have? Often it is because we think, isn't it, that we're right and that the other person <laughs> is wrong. James, I think, challenges this by saying that Fights and quarrels come from the desires that battle within us. So often the breakdown of relationships are caused not because of the other person, but because of our own desire to be right. Our continual desire to have the final word, uh, to get what the other person has. This is the root cause, James says, of fighting. It's broken relationships that are caused by the internal desires that we all carry. Uh, there is an author uh, called Stephen Kendrick, who's also a pastor, said this, Almost every sinful action ever committed can be traced back to a selfish motive. It's a trait that we hate in other people, but we justify in ourselves. And as I read that, I could really relate to that. I could really understand where he was talking about that, where you look at other people and we think they're the ones that are the problem. They're the ones that are causing all the stress. And we don't look into ourselves and we realize that actually it's all the broken desires that we have in ourselves that cause the problems. We wonder, don't we, why can't people be better where we don't look at ourselves and realize that we're the actual root cause of so much of the problems? Selfishness leads to jealousy, which leads to fighting, which leads to broken relationships, 
So if this is the case, uh, let's not dwell on that too long. What's the answer to that? James is saying here that actually we need to move these selfish desires away from the things that we want and onto the things that God wants for us. I wonder this morning, how do you see God? How do you perceive who God is? Do we see God as a harsh disciplinarian who's just there waiting for us to mess up so he can you know, wave, you know, wave his finger at us? Or do we see God as a loving father who wants to bless us, who invites us to be in relationship with him? Jesus says in Matthew uh, chapter 7, If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? God is a loving Father who longs to give good gifts to his children. And so we're invited. James invites us to ask God for the things that we desire. And the problem is when, this, when these desires are not aligned with what he wants for us. James says it's when we ask out of selfish motives that we don't receive. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So this is where submission to God comes in. Submission uh, to God in the context of these selfish desires is saying, God, help me to want what you want for me. We need to come before God daily saying, uh, God, change the desires that I have to be the desires that you have. So we recognize that he is the source of all the things that we want. He is the source of all the, the things that we need and that submitting to him says that we trust him. So that's the first thing, uh, that submission is the antidote to selfishness. Secondly, uh, submission is the antidote to seduction. James continues in uh, verses four to six with some pretty harsh words. Uh, So steal yourself for these. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? That is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. This is pretty provocative language that James is using here. And it's hard, isn't it, to hear those words. It's hard to be, uh, you know, have those words, you adulterous people. What's James talking about here? Is James saying that anyone who is friends with, it, with the world, anyone who is friends with anybody outside of the church is somehow an enemy of God? Is he saying that we somehow need to remove ourselves from being part of the world? I think it's important that we understand really what he is meaning when he says that phrase, friendship with the world. James is not referring here to other people. He's not referring to uh, people outside of the church. You know, we are called, aren't we, as church to love our neighbours Uh, John 3.16 famously says, For God so loved the world, that is the people within it. So it's not about people. And we see that modelled by Jesus, don't we? That as Jesus went around, he healed, he loved, he restored. So I'm going to get a little bit academic with you now, because I spent some time researching the original Greek for this. Uh, the the, The word that James uses for world here is a Greek word called cosmos. Uh, which literally translated uh, means the order or the arrangement of something. So James is here, when he's talking about the world, he's not talking about the people in the world, but he's talking about the order or the arrangement or the systems of 
the world. It's interestingly related to the verb cosmeo, which is where we get the English word cosmetic from, which means uh, a decorating or an adorning or a putting on of something in order to become more attractive or beautiful. So it's the attractive, beautiful, seductive systems of the world that James is saying that we should avoid here, not the people of it. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19 says this, We know that we are children of God, and the whole world is under the control of the evil one. As Christians, we are living in enemy-occupied territory, and James is warning us to be alert to this. Being friends with the world isn't about being friends with the people of the world, but it's about believing that the things of the world, the systems of the world, the order, the arrangements of the world can give us the identities that we long for. It's about believing the lies that the stuff that we own can somehow uh, get us uh, to where we want to be, the experiences we have. Every time we uh, pick up our phones and we mindlessly scroll through social media or the endless uh, stream of bad news, you know, we find ourselves believing and being seduced by the lies of the world, the lies that say that, that we can be our own saviors. James is warning us here, don't be distracted, don't be seduced by these things. Because if we start believing the, the lies the world tells us, we'll end up uh, doubting the truths that God says about who we are. Truths that he is our provider, that he is our protector, that he defines our identity as children of God. And James doesn't mince his words here. He calls his readers an adulterous people. He likens being seduced by the systems and the order of the world to unfaithfulness within marriage. And I think it's so interesting here to see what God's response is. God's response to our unfaithfulness to him is that he's jealous. He's jealous for us. I love the New King James translation of verse 5. It says this, Do you think that scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? Because God wants to be in relationship with you. He wants, he desires to be in relationship with each one of us this morning. And our seduction by the world upsets him. And it upsets him and therefore he's jealous for us because he loves us. And that's not the best for us. So this is when submission to God becomes an invitation. It becomes God saying, I'm inviting you into relationship with me because I love you and because I want the best for you. Paul says in Romans chapter 13, and do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber. As I was thinking about this, I was really had a sense that as a society, we've been lulled to sleep by the arrangements and the systems of the world. The attractive systems of the world have soothed us, haven't they? They've lulled us into a comfortable sleep. I think God's saying to us, wake up. Don't become numb by the constant stream of distraction, anxiety, bad news, insecurity, the empty promises. God's inviting us to come near to him. He says that in verse 8, come near to God and he will come near to you. Submission to God is actually an act of defiance. It's actually an act of strength because as we do it, James says, the devil will flee from us. 
So that's the second thing. And finally, uh, as we draw towards a close, we've looked at how submission to God is an antidote to selfishness. We've looked at how submission to God is an antidote to the seduction of the world. And finally, submission to God is an antidote to superiority. All the way through this chapter, uh, James is talking about how God wants to sort out our relationships. First of all, our relationships with ourselves, then with the systems of the world, and now finally, other people. From verse 11 of the, of the passage we've had read to us says this, Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister and judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but you're sitting in judgment of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? James is finishing this passage by warning us against judging other people. Because speaking against a brother or sister is actually putting ourselves above the law of God. In a sense, we are taking on God's role. Mother Teresa famously uh, said this, if you judge people, you have no time to love them. Such wise words. And James is saying the same thing. You know, as a church, as a community of people, what we are called to do is simply to love other people, to show love to them. And tragically, the church uh, globally has failed to do this historically. Christians are seen, aren't we, as, as judgmental people, as condemning people. One of the biggest reasons people avoid uh, being part of church is because they simply feel like they're going to be judged. Rather than being the welcoming community uh, that James describes here, churches can be so often places where people are made to feel unwelcome, condemned uh, for their lifestyle choices, their past behaviours, where they're at. And I think we need to repent of our quickness to judge other people. We need to remove the air of superiority that says that we have it all together and somehow somebody else doesn't. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Paul says in uh, Romans chapter 8. And comparing that to the words of Jesus uh, in John chapter 8, as he speaks to the woman at the well, uh, this is a woman that, I don't know if you remember the story, where there's a woman that is being judged by the crowd of people for where she's at in her life. And Jesus says to the crowd, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And of course, the crowd know that none of them have the right and they leave. And then Jesus turns to the, the woman and says, neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Let's leave God's work to God, shall we? God is calling us to submit to him so we can remove the air of superiority that we can so easily have as church. Submission to God is recognizing that we don't have it all together and therefore, we don't have any right to pass judgment on other people. So those are the, the three things I wanted to, to mention this morning. That submitting to God is an invitation to uh, an antidote to selfishness, to the seduction of the world, and to the superiority that can so easily creep in. Jesus taught us, didn't he, to pray, your will be done. Do we actually mean that when we say it? Or do we mean, your will be done, brackets, as long as it matches what we want, God, thanks very much. Jesus modelled this so amazingly in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed, not my will, but yours 
be done. Jesus totally submitted to his father because he knew that his father was completely in control and he trusted his father 100%. And so that's the invitation that uh, we need to follow this morning to daily choose his way of doing things. And uh, I feel like this passage really is speaking to us as a church right now, that there is a call in this passage to bow down before him again, to submit to his ways and to seek his face. I've been uh, in a number of different um, prayer uh, gatherings as part of uh, the church over the last few weeks, and that word seeking has been one that has come up again and again. You know, and I feel like God is saying to us as church, we need to be seeking him again. Uh, you may be aware of uh, events that have been happening over in the States at Asbury University. Um, there's been a huge outpouring of the Holy Spirit um, over the last uh, few weeks. Just coming out of a, a university campus that really got together a few people for a routine chapel service. And off the back of that, literally thousands and thousands of people have been going through their prayer meetings, uh, authentic times of worship, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that has just been incredible to see. And I was listening to um, a podcast the other day where they were talking about this. And they were saying one of the most fascinating things about this move of the Spirit that's happening uh, at this university in America is just how... Uh, it wasn't really uh, caused by any kind of charismatic preacher or any kind of flashy events or any kind of sense of kind of production. But it was simply faithful people who got on their knees and sought God. Uh, one of the phrases that really struck me was when they were saying that uh, one of the, the leaders of this, uh, th this group of students at this university said that there is no celebrity here but Jesus. And it really struck me as how easily it can be uh, for us to get distracted. And God is calling us to put ourselves again under the authority of him. Pete Gregg said this uh, about this revival. He said, it's not about the revival, but about the reviver. And I love that phrase. And uh, I really believe that God is calling us now to seek him. Not for a, a revival per se, but for the reviver. Deuteronomy uh, chapter 12, and I'll finish with this. Uh, there's, a, there's a verse in Deuteronomy 12 that says this, you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. And this verse uh, is about seeking God. It's also actually about, I think, a, a, a place that God will choose. And I feel like this could be speaking into us, our search as a church for a building, I believe that God does have a place for us, but it's a place that he will choose and that he will reveal to us if we seek him in faith. But I think not just a, a physical place, I think this verse also speaks about a metaphorical place within each of us that God wants to inhabit, a place of submission to him and an invitation that he offers to all of us. Verse 10 of this chapter we've read says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. So let's be a church, shall we, that says your will be done.